Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, in a Bible study that I've entitled, Only God Can Melt the Hardened Heart. Only God Can Melt the Hardened Heart. Now you guys that have been studying along with us, verse by verse, through the book of Hebrews, already know that we're in a controversial section of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 6. And so what do people do with controversial passages of the Bible? Well, they tend to argue about them, fight over them, and some even stake their claim and are unmovable. But I would encourage us not to lose the forest of God's great love for us because of a few difficult scriptural trees along the way. We actually should expect, as we're reading and studying the Bible, that we're not going to understand everything that there are gonna be things that are difficult to grasp. Because really, if we understood everything there was about the Bible and about God, then we would be God. And so along the way, as we're growing, as we're maturing, we're gonna learn more, but we're never going to learn everything. And so we should expect that there are some hard things in the Bible. We should expect that there are some difficult passages. You know, Peter, when he was writing his second letter, he said the same exact thing. So it's not something that we're just dealing with. They were dealing with it in the first century. Listen to what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. He says, And remember the Lord is waiting so that people have time to be saved. This is just as our beloved Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters around to mean something quite different from what he meant, just as they do the other parts of scripture, and the result is disaster for them. And it's really a shame that we would be trapped into arguing over the Bible instead of worshiping the author. And that's his intent, that we might know of his love and his grace and his mercy. Now, whenever we tackle any section of the Bible, any part of the Bible, we always need to remember the context in which which it was written, especially difficult parts of the Bible. Context is king. Not only do we need to remember the context, but we also need to remember the historical grammatical background of the text. We need to remember that when the book of Hebrews, for example, was written, it was written to a specific people at a specific time for a specific reason. And before we ever take the Bible to apply it to our lives today, separated by generation after generation, we must first determine what did it mean to the people that were hearing it. That's very important. Because if you choose, and I choose to take a text out of its context, then we can make the Bible say just about anything we want it to say. So we need to stay within the context. Now, the specific context that this section, verses 4 through 8, is found is under the banner of spiritual maturity. Remember, he is teaching them in this section about their maturity in Jesus Christ. 
He's saying, by now, you guys should be teachers. You have known Jesus Christ long enough that you should be teachers. But instead, we need to go through the elementary principles of Jesus Christ. You should be telling people about these things, but I have to repeat them over and over again. The context generally, and specifically in this section, is spiritual maturity. Now, the context generally of the letter to the Hebrews, you recall, is a group of Jewish Christians that have been delivered and taken from Judaism into the fullness of what Judaism promises, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And yet, in their relationship with Jesus Christ, they are heavily tempted to go back to Judaism. Specifically, that's what they're dealing with. They want to go back to the rituals, to the sacrifices, to the worship system of the old covenant. Here they are as new covenant believers, fulfilling the the desire of their heart by faith in Jesus Christ. And what does the author do? Paul says, Jesus is greater, 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 greater. Don't go back, don't go back. Why are you even considering going back? And today we come to probably the most stern warning in all of Hebrews, perhaps even in the Bible. This context is going forward, moving forward, don't go back to Judaism. And so with that in mind, pick up with me in verse four of Hebrews chapter six. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again themselves for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be Burned. So to this audience of Jewish believers who have embraced their Messiah, the word of the Lord comes. He's warning them, don't go backward. Don't go back to Judaism. That's his warning. And I believe as they heard this warning, while there might be much debate today, for the audience that heard this for the very first time, they understood exactly what Paul intended. That it sat well in their minds and their hearts. That they knew without a doubt what this warning entailed and how strong it was given to them. I don't believe there was any confusion among those that needed to hear this warning. And so as we come to a text like this, it's important that we let the Bible say what it says. That we allow it to speak to us today, that we learn how to open the Bible and read it and yield to what it says, not trying to explain it away and and not trying to make it say something that it doesn't say. It was Charles Spurgeon, that great 19th century preacher that said, and I quote, we come to this passage ourselves with the intention to read it with the simplicity of a child and whatever we find therein to state it. And if it may not seem to agree with something we have heard so far, 
We are prepared to cast away every doctrine of our own rather than one passage of scripture. He says, it's far better to be inconsistent with ourselves than with the inspired word. And so let's break it down here and notice, first of all, who is being addressed? We have said over and over again that Hebrews has been written to Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. So who is this group he's describing? Well, notice, he says, he describes them as, first of all, those who were once enlightened. Now, in looking at these elements, this is a good time where we go back to the original language, which is the Greek here, and understand the tense in which these words are written. The tense of these words in this description of this group of people, those, the tense of the words is in the aorist, A-O-R-I-S-T. And the way that we deal with that tense when we translate to the English is the idea of this has happened once and for all. Or, or you could say, this really happened. That's the aorist tense. So when it says, first of all, number one, that they were once enlightened, it's describing a group of people where their eyes were opened, where they are now seeing things spiritually, where the light of the gospel and salvation of Christ broke through their lives. This really happened. Number two, notice, not only were they enlightened, verse four, but they also tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the heavenly gift. They received salvation. I believe this is a group of people that were born again. They were born again. They're living their new lives by faith in Jesus Christ. So much so that this word taste actually was used in a previous chapter. Would you go back to chapter two? Jesus also tasted something. Same word. And notice how it describes chapter two, verse nine. It says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. And Jesus tasting death is a description of his real death. And so when we come back to Hebrews 6, they tasted of the heavenly gift. This is a real taste. They experienced salvation. Thirdly, it says they became partakers of the Holy Spirit. The word partake means to share with. They shared, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They shared as partners with the Spirit of God. Fourthly, it says in verse 5, they tasted of the good word of God. They taste, they took in the God's word continually. They received his truths inwardly. Remember, the Bible teaches that a man or a woman that is spiritually dead, someone that's not born again, cannot understand the Bible. They can't receive it. And so the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. This is a group of people that understood the Bible, and only people who can understand the Bible are spiritually saved. And then notice the fifth thing uh, that we see is not only that, that they became partakers of the Holy Spirit, they tasted of the word of God, and finally, they tasted of the powers of the age to come. They had a taste of heaven. They have a heavenly hope. And so I believe that this describes a group of believers. And this would be a good time to stand back and look at some of the popular views of this section. One of the most popular views of this section of Hebrews <clears throat> is that Many believe that this is describing a group of people that's not really saved. They're sort of fake 
believers and they dabble in things that are, they, they go to church and they own a Bible and they have new language and they're not, hallelujah brothers, hey, praise the Lord, but, but they're not really saved. I don't believe that's what this is describing. However, there is such a thing as make believers. And so unless we just dismiss that, there is such a thing that this group of people that, that I know in a group this size, listening to me right now, there are those that are pretending to be saved. They're pretending. They, they picked up a Bible along the way. They picked up a few words. They, they like being around Christians, but really have never been born again. That group of people does exist. And if you're hearing my voice today, don't stay in that group. Uh, John would describe that group. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he says, little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it's the last hour. And he describes a group of people. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. I really don't believe that Hebrews 6 is addressing fake believers as we've seen the words in the tense of the words speak of matter-of-fact occurrences. Another view of Hebrews 6 is that some believe that this is just a hypothetical situation that's laid out for us to consider. It's just hypothetical. It's not really real, but maybe if this would happen, this is how it's going to go down. There's a great problem with that contextually. Because in order for this to be hypothetical, it's tied in with the admonition to mature and to grow. So that would be have, to ha have to be hypothetical too. And if you work your way back, you'd say, now wait a minute, it ties in so deeply with the need to be spiritually mature that the rest of the section would ha have to be hypothetical too. And it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the context at all. A third view of this section is that there are those that say that this speaks to believers who are saved and lose their salvation. And this is where they just become unsaved. And I don't really believe this is teaching that at all. That would have to take it out of its context and a lot of other passages in the scripture that we'll be studying in the next few weeks. Since salvation is eternal and not temporary, one thing we never find in the Bible anywhere at any time is a born-again believer becoming unborn again. You don't see that in the scriptures, nor do you see it back and forth. A fourth view of this is even more difficult, and that is some believe this is referring to people who follow God, then they backslide and can never come back to God ever again. And you would think that that would not be taught anywhere, but there are churches that teach you get one shot and God isn't the God of the second chance and that's it you get one chance and one the first time you blow it it's over the first time you turn away and I simply don't see that as a part of the entirety of scriptures or the heart of God either the Bible says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ it's so encouraging and so as we look at this text, we recognize that there is tension on both sides. On the one side, we recognize and acknowledge the sovereignty of God and his ability and power to sovereignly arrange things as he sees fit, that we submit to his sovereignty. And yet, 
A person that's born again, one thing that doesn't happen is that God doesn't take away your free will choice. You and I still make our choices, and it's been wisely said, we make our choices, and then our choices make us. And so we still have the ability to make choices. And one thing that we cannot lose in this text, in all the debate, is this simple fact. Believers, true believers, can fall away and turn aside and turn their back on Jesus Christ. It is possible for you to make a choice to walk away from the joy of your salvation, to turn away from enjoying the presence of God. Often we will call that backsliding, but you can call it whatever you want. It is possible for you to choose to live a disobedient life. It is possible for you to choose to rebel against the God that loves you. It is possible for you, that's why the Bible tells us, and John, John will tell us in 1 John, keep yourselves in the love of God. On the one hand, you have God and his power and his sovereignty. That as a believer, you are in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. That, that you are safe and secure as you abide in Christ, yes. And on the other hand, we can make some really foolish mistakes and foolish sinful decisions that will take away the enjoyment, the enjoyment of the love of God and live a rebellious life and suffer the significant consequences as well as those people that are around you and love you the consequences of rebellion and the essence of the text today for the Hebrew Christians then and for you and I today is don't choose disobedience don't go backwards it will not lead you to what you think is there don't do it that's the stern warning but the reality that you can make bad decisions and walk away from the love of God, of course you can. Does that mean God doesn't love you anymore? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that you will live a miserable life until you come to the end of yourself, which reminds me of one of the most popular parables that Jesus ever taught. We commonly refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. Which we could rewrite that title, couldn't we? Because that title's not in the Bible. We could rewrite it, the, the parable of the prodigal sons. Because he actually had two boys that were struggling in their relationship with dad. But actually, a careful reading of the scriptures would say that we have to title that parable completely differently. Because it's actually not about the sons at all. It's the parable of a father's love. And to summarize the father's love, you know, to summarize that parable, you have a dad with two sons. One of the sons decides, I don't want to live with you anymore, dad. I don't like the rules. I don't like the way it is here. I want my inheritance now because the bright lights of the city are tempting me and there's things that await me and I want to take off. And so what does dad do? Gives him his request. Remember what the Psalm said? And the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, he gave them their request, but what? Sin leanness into their souls he gives them the request he goes in the kid goes into the city man he's got a lot of new friends he's got the party lifestyle things are going well until his money ran out and when his money ran out his friends ran out and when his friends ran out a famine hit the land worst timing for this kid and instead of humbling himself he took a job and he took a, a real difficult job feeding pigs 
It was not only below what his capability was, the consequence of his decision now is that his job was now leading him into more disobedience. It wasn't for him to be around pigs on clean animals within the religious system that he lived. It was a miserable life. And in that misery, he came to the end of himself. And he decides, you know, it'd be better just to go home as a servant. I'd have a better life as my dad's servant, let alone a son. And it was through that brokenness that he comes home. And what happens is dad meets him, hugs him, throws him a party. But some of you I know, with the love of the parents that you have, and the prodigal kids that are a part of your life, some of you have questioned, why didn't the dad go after him? Because we always read the Bible, and uh, I mean, we often read the Bible like, well, you know, if I was the dad, I would have gone after him. Well, what is it about the inspired word of God of Jesus where the dad didn't go after him? Keep that in mind, because that is what happened. The dad waited for him, but didn't go after him. So notice now, with that in mind, come back to verse 4, and let's read again in the beginning. It is impossible. It is impossible. What is impossible? Jump down to verse six. If this group of believers fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. What is impossible? Well, I believe this is teaching us. It's impossible to follow Jesus to fall away from Jesus, it's impossible to return to him to repent in your rebellious state. It's impossible. While you choose rebellion, repentance will not reside with rebellion. It's either or. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 11, verse 23. He who is not with me is against me. And it is impossible to bring a person to repentance with a hard heart. That's why you know, some of you can say this with absolute certainty. You've tried to reason with them. You've tried to beg them. You've tried to convince them. And they won't listen. As a matter of fact, it seems like their hearts get harder. And they don't get closer to God. They're farther away. They're, they're, they're even that sense where you go, I don't know if I want to say anything because I don't want to push them away. Well, it's not you that pushes them away. Their hearts are hard. And only God can melt the hardened heart. And it's impossible for us to convince a person that's determined to rebel against God to repent because that alone is a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I cannot do that in a person. You're listening to me right now and your heart is hard toward God and yet he's pricking your heart to the place to return to the Lord the word of the Lord to you is to return. You are that close. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't die in that condition. Here's the heart of Hebrews 6, I believe, this section. Don't turn away from God. Don't do it. That's his word then and that's his word today. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. Press into him, not away from him. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't slide away. It's almost as if the author is saying, I beg you, press into the things of God and don't compromise. 
It will not lead you into a softer heart, but it will harden your heart. Because the backslider, the rebellion, the rebellious one, the one that's turned away, the one that's fallen away. And by the way, you Bible students, you can circle that word fall away and you can just write, to, write next to it, not apostasy. Because there is a word that's used in the New Testament to refer to apostasy. It's the Greek word apostasia. That's not the word used here. The word used here to fall away means to err or to stumble or to make a mistake. If, if you have made the mistake of turning your back on God, if you have walked away from his love, if you have turned your back on him, it's impossible to renew you to repentance until you come to the end of yourself. We need to be praying for you. The backslider no longer enjoys the presence of Jesus in their lives, no longer lives in his love. No matter how much love and how much care is given, he or she still refuses to repent because their hearts are hard. And tragically, they are harming the cause of Jesus Christ in the earth today, his mission, bringing confusion to so many people, hurting others through their sin, destroying families, jacking up their kids. It happens every day of every week of every month until the coming of the Lord. It happens. And the warning today is don't. Don't shame the name of Jesus Christ by living a hypocritical life. Notice the words. Notice the words in verse six. He says, since they crucify again, and then the, themselves the Son of God, crucify again, and then the phrase, put him to an open shame. Those words also in the tense of the Greek could be literally translated in the English because they're in the present, the present participles. They could be translated in the English while they are crucifying the Son of God and putting him to an open shame because that's what the backslider does. For the audience, here's what he's saying. If you go back to Judaism, remember I've been telling you this and preparing you for it. Going back to Judaism doesn't make biblical sense and it doesn't make practical sense. And they both overlap. Because Judaism and all of its sacrifices and all of its, all, all of its uh, joy of religious activity that God prescribed was pointing to one thing and one thing only, the coming of Jesus Christ, Messiah. That when he came, he fulfilled all of the law He's the fulfillment of the law and the religious system so that in him, you and I have everything that we need for life and godliness. All that we need is found in Jesus Christ. So for those that were having a faith in Jesus Christ to go back to Judaism, to trust in the sacrifice of animals, the bloody system of sacrifice, to trust in the formalism and the religious activity, if they were truly going back to Judaism, what would it do? Point them to Jesus again which then they would be called to embrace as Messiah. And so that if they went back to the system of Judaism and went through the rituals, Paul is saying, you will not find forgiveness there. It's even worse. While you're in the system, it's like you're putting Jesus back on the cross every time you offer an animal. Every time you offer a sacrifice, you're like crucifying Jesus all over again. You're putting the cross of Calvary to open shame because he is the lamb of God 
that takes away the sins of the world. He's once and for all delivered. He is once and for all crucified. To go back to the old life and the old system of operating, offering sacrifices for sins would be in effect saying that Jesus' death didn't matter every time they did it. And he's pleading with them to see the significance. Paul's saying they could never be brought to repentance in that system. As long as they were in that place, treating Jesus Christ in such a shameful way, repentance wouldn't take place. They'd have to be broken. In other words, the writer's saying that if they do retreat back to Judaism, all the religious repentance in the world will do them no good. It's only when they stop disgracing Jesus in this way that they can be brought to repentance and renew their relationship with God. He describes it in verse seven. He says, the earth that drinks in the rain and often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. When you're fruitful, you enjoy the blessings of God. But notice in verse eight, if it bears thorns and briars, if there is just thorns and difficulties and there's no fruit from your life, then it, it's rejected. We know that's going to happen at the Bema Seat of Christ, where the very motives of everything we did will be tested by fire. God does not receive our good works. He doesn't receive the thorns and the briars of our own good efforts in order to receive forgiveness. It's only hum humble repentance that God honors. And notice, not only is it rejected, but emphasize that word, it's near to being cursed. Not being cursed, it's near. You're heading in the wrong direction. Don't go back. Stay in the fruitful place of drinking in the rain. You don't want your end to be burned. As the ground that bears good and bad, herbs are useful, but thorns and briars are not. F.F. Bruce put it this way in his commentary, and I quote, Our author compares those believers who persevere in faith to fertile ground, which produces fruit. While those believers in whose lives the fruits of righteousness do not appear are compared to land, which will never produce anything but thorns and thistles to, keep, to be kept down by burning, for our God is a consuming fire. And so the good news of salvation is refreshing and it's glorious to those who realize it's not based on our good works. You can't go backwards to anything other than the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. He alone is the author and finisher of salvation. And there is no mixture of any works, good or bad, from you or me. That we need to stay moving forward. That the temptation to go backwards. Now I know most of us aren't tempted to go back to Judaism. But many are tempted to go back to a life that will lead to disaster. To destruction. It will wipe you out. And it will wipe your family out. And your friends. It will bring a shame and dishonor and disgrace to the name of Jesus Christ. That's the essence. And for those that spend time arguing on this section, that is often missed. The warning, don't go backwards. That's the word of the Lord to us. Now I know not everyone will be satisfied with the answers that I shared with you today. But look, stay close to Jesus. Love the lost. Go after the wandering. Pray for the backslider because God is abundantly gracious and ready to forgive that we do serve the God of the second chance. But there's no need for you to turn away from God in order to learn that God gives second chances. You can just trust in the faithfulness of God. You know, this idea that it's impossible to repent 
is a very destructive teaching. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't find consistency in the entirety of the scriptures. I'll give you just one example. For those that might still hold to, well, there's only one chance and you'll never be able to repent, I suggest to you to study the life of Peter. Because if there was ever anyone in the new covenant, now, you see, Peter's life covered both the old period of the, period of the old covenant and the new covenant. And sometimes people make Hebrews 6 some kind of new covenant argument, but God is the God of the Bible. And he's a God that loves from the beginning to the end. But Peter, he covers both sides. Because right at the cross of Jesus Christ, what do we find Peter doing? Denying the Lord. I mean, denying without any shame. I don't know that man. I don't know that man. I don't know that man. And it was on that third time that the rooster crowed, just like God, just like Jesus predicted. Now it's interesting that Jesus predicted his denial. So it's gonna happen. And then in his prediction, what did he say? And when you return, strengthen your brethren. And so before the crucifixion, Peter denies. And he runs away and flees. Jesus dies. Peter's still living in denial. He's buried for three days. Peter's still living in denial. Jesus rises again from the dead and begins to meet with people. And one of the guys that he meets is Peter. And he looks Peter in the eye. And he says, go take care of my sheep. What does Jesus do with Peter? He restores him. And he tells him, talking about that love relationship. Three times he asked him the question. Why? Because I believe he matched and wanted to match, knowing the weakness of our minds. He wanted Peter to have a loving restoration for each of his denials. Away with the thought that you can't come back to the Lord. That your failure is too great. That it's too difficult that it's insurmountable. Please don't allow anyone to take you to Hebrews 6 and say, right here it says it's impossible. Go ahead and give them a Bible study on the topic and share with them the love of God and how he is a God, even in the old covenant. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 84 verse six? He says, rejoice the soul of your servant for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications because in the day of my trouble, I will call upon you and you will answer me. In those times we're in trouble, even when we bring the trouble upon ourselves, the days we're in trouble, we call upon him and what does he do? He hears us. But as long as you live in a hardened state, and as long as you resist and rebel, you put yourself in an impossible situation, in a difficult dilemma. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation. That Jesus Christ, you know, we look at a difficult passage and sometimes we camp on difficult passages, but aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful? that there are many passages in the Bible that are easy to understand. And the one that's so easy to understand has everything to do with your spiritual life. 
It's a very common passage. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the good news in one verse. The love of God, the fallen condition of your life met together by sending his son Jesus Christ to live, die, and rise again so that now by your choice, your volition, your belief opens the door to God's abundant, eternal salvation. And that is God's invitation to you today. Church of Jesus Christ, don't go backwards. Those of you that have never surrendered your life to Jesus, today's the day. And that God would move upon us in such a way that notice, verse 9, he says, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. We're confident of these things, that you'll avoid this. Things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. And so who is exhibit number one? Abraham, the man who failed many times. It's a beautiful thing to persevere in the strength of the Lord and inherit the promises that God has for you. Because you know what? God is not just the great promise giver. He's also the great promise keeper. And I'm grateful for his keeping power in our lives. Amen? So Father, we thank you for this text. We are grateful that through the way that you have discipled us, we handle the whole Bible. And I'm grateful that even in hard texts, you can help make them simpler for us. I do, God, before you and before men today, men and women, I acknowledge um, not everybody agrees on this text. And it's been that way from the moment it was written. But God, would you change us? Would you change the way we see things? There's so much tension and conflict in the world today and even in the body of Christ that you would help us to be an agent of change. I was just reading this morning, Lord, you told me, blessed are the peacemakers. And I want to live a blessed life, Lord. I want to be an agent of peace, true peace, not, not false, but true and I'm grateful, God, that you could give us a greater understanding of difficult texts. I'm grateful that you would warn us not to go backwards. I'm grateful that Judaism is not a temptation for us, but other things are. Other things would bring a shame to your name. It would crucify you again in a way where we aren't living out the finished work of the cross, but instead our own sinful good works or whatever. And so forgive us, God. I think we all stray, like James said, we all stumble in many things. There's not one among us that doesn't slip and fall and err, and in a small way or even a large way, fall away, make a mistake, trip up. Even that word means accidental at times. 
So God, would you pour out your spirit on us today? Would you draw people to a softness? Would you bring people to the end of themselves? That they might learn to surrender and obey? There's no other way than to trust and obey in you, Lord. May you fill us with trust and obedience in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We don't want to walk away. We don't want to turn our back. We don't want to block the blessings in our lives and create horrific consequences. So help us, Lord. and Fill us afresh with the power of your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.